When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the TLS's podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording made in October 2018 of An Introduction to the Odyssey, a panel event chaired by the TLS's classics editor Mary Beard in collaboration with the Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival. Who is Odysseus? Why can't he get home? And will the gods help or hinder his journey? Discussing these questions and more are the author and academic Simon Goldhill, Professor of Greek at Cambridge, the memoirist and translator Daniel Mendelssohn, the poet Catherine McCarthy-Wolfe and the novelist Madeleine Miller. Hello, everybody. Uh, um, welcome to uh, one of the events in the Odyssey-themed uh, Southbank Literature Festival. Uh, I'm Mary Beard, and I'm going to moderate these people. Uh, and I think I'm doing that in my capacity as the classics editor of the Times Literary Supplement, which hereby gets its plug. Right? <laughs> um, the only other thing I should point out to you before we, we kick in um, is that uh, there is going to be this um, edited reading of uh, the Odyssey at four o'clock this afternoon in this room um, using Emily Wilson's new translation. Um, it's not going to be the whole of the Odyssey. You're not going to be here till tomorrow, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> Um, but I have to say, just to warn you, that if you don't already have tickets, um, it is technically sold out. So um, I'm afraid um, Homer's having a very big day today. Um, I'm going to introduce um, my interlocutors, um, starting at the far side with Karen McCarthy Wolf, who's a poet from London, and who was one of the contributors to a Radio 4 series of reworkings of episodes from the Odyssey. Then got next to me Daniel Mendelssohn, who's a writer and critic, who's based in New York, and he's the author of a recent memoir about reading the Odyssey with his father. Here we've got Simon Goldhill, 
who is um, professor of Greek at the University of Cambridge, and uh, he knows a lot about the Odyssey, <laughs> and, as you would imagine. And then we have at the far end Madeleine Miller, who's uh, a writer and teacher from the United States, and whose most recent novel is based on the character of Circe um, from the Odyssey. Now, I want to start by um, just having us dive in a bit, uh, and I'm going to ask um, my panel in turn just to give us, you know, no more than a couple of minutes on um, their pitch on the Odyssey, their take, how they first came to it, why it's worth reading, or any combination of those. Daniel, I'm going to you first. Well, I came to the Odyssey, I think like many people in high school, I had a wonderful English teacher in high school and I was already interested in Greek, Greek things. Uh, and she said, oh, well, you, know, you must read the Odyssey. Kids your age love the Odyssey because of all the adventures and monsters and all of that. And so I read it and I found myself loving that stuff the least. Uh, and what I really loved are two things. I would say, here's my pitch. Um, it is the great work about identity, right? The great problem of the Odyssey is here's this guy who's been away from home for 20 years and he has to prove who he is. And as I always like to tell my students, this is in the era before driver's licenses. Uh, and so what does it mean to prove that you are the same person? Anyone who has been to a 10th high school reunion is familiar with this phenomenon. <laughs> when strange people come up to you and say, I dated you, you know, and you think, who is this person? Uh, and so, I'm joking, but the Odyssey is extremely uh, animated about this question of identity. And the other great thing, of course, about the Odyssey is, and related to the first, is that this is a character who is a great storyteller. Odysseus himself is a master of language, puns, jokes, uh, lies, it must be said, and he forms you know, what people think they know about him and who he is, is based on his ability to con them with language. So he's a very appealing character, uh, particularly if you're a writer. He's this sort of original uh, writer in some sense. How is that on two minutes? I think, I think okay. that's uh, absolutely brilliant. What about you, Karen? Oh, well, you said writer, Daniel, and I suppose for me, Oops. I came to the Odyssey as a writer. Um, so sort of less as a, a, like a young kid and much more as someone that was reading it as a writer and thinking about the text. I suppose, you know, when you enter a text as a writer, you're thinking about it in terms of what you might harvest. You know, there's kind of quite a kind of, <laughs> a sort of like vampirish relationship with it in a way. Um, so, but I was also thinking about, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about identity as well because I was thinking about I mean, in a way, for me, Odysseus is a character who's, you know, full of huge sort of issues of entitlement. So, um, you know, he's, you know, in, to me, I was asked to respond to the Odyssey um, for Radio 4, um, thinking about it as a sort of text that might respond to issues of migration in a contemporary sort of sense, but for me, Odysseus is much more the expat than he is the migrant. So, you know, that's maybe how he enters the space. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I think, yeah. But at the same time, 
I think that he's, he's this deeply complex character where he is kind of like, I feel like he's moral but not ethical um, in sort of how he reaches his goal. But at the same time, he's a... You know, and he's, he's, he's charismatic. And I think also he's suffering from the biggest case of man flu there ever was. <laughs> you know, it's like, hello. Um, yeah, it was really, 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 really terrible, those eight years having to sort of, like, wait it out on an island with the most amazingly gorgeous goddess or goddesses. <laughs> you know, that was awful. It was horrific. So um, I, like, I like it for its hyperbole in, in some ways. Madeline. Um, so my relationship to the, to the Odyssey goes back to when I was a child, my mother used to read me pieces from both the Iliad and the Odyssey as bedtime stories, which uh, now she thinks makes her sound really inappropriate. Um, and, but I, I really loved them, and I, I was completely gripped by these stories that felt so huge and passionate and exciting. And actually, Daniel, I had the same experience where I thought that the monsters were the least interesting part. Um, I was very engaged in the human story that was being told, you know, this exhausted man who's just trying to get home to, to his family. Um, and... I, I sort of, I was drawn to it to study it, and I ended up going on to study, um, to study Homer and, and the Odyssey, but I was also drawn to it in the sense that I kind of wanted to get in it, um, and I wanted to be able to find sort of some of these moments that as interesting as Odysseus is, he is that original storyteller, and in fact, for a chunk of the, of the Odyssey, he is telling the story. So for some of these episodes, Circe, um, the Cyclops, this is his version of it that he is explicitly telling, and given that he sort of lies his way across the Odyssey, um, it, it would make sense that he would be shaping that narrative and that those characters would be very self-serving to an image that he wants to create, mm -hmm. which to me kind of led me into feeling like, well, how would that look from someone else's perspective? How are these people looking at Odysseus? You know, if we take the Odyssey as sort of his version of his story, um, how does that story look to other people? And there are all these wonderful characters to do that with in the Odyssey. Now, I'm going to let Simon off the hook on this particular task, but I'm going to ask him, um, because he had a go at this in last week's TLS, saying how he came to the Odyssey and writing a, a large article in the TLS. So I want to get him to do something slightly different, which is to, as it were, ventriloquize the, the shadowy figure who's also here somehow on the platform with us, which is Homer, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Homer uh, probably didn't exist um, and he may or may not have been part and parcel of composing, not writing down, the Odyssey in, let's say, the 8th century BC, just after someone who might also have been called Homer uh, didn't <laughs> write down the Iliad, right? Um, so uh, what I want Simon to do is to be Homer for two minutes and uh, give us, just so we're all up to speed... Um, the plot of these 12,000 lines of poetry. Okay, the Odyssey in two minutes. <laughs> in the Odyssey, Odysseus, the hero, comes home from Troy to his house in Ithaca. The first four books are about Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, who is looking to find his father. We get the house in disarray, the house without a head, looking for its head. 
In the second four books, we get Odysseus traveling from Calypso's island, where he's been holed up with the goddess for seven years, as far away as possible from human inhabitation, back to an amazing place called Scaria, where the Phaeacians live, which is a sort of magic Californian mystery place <laughs> of great beauty where the trees are always in flower and fruit is always there. So he travels from the place as far away as from civilization to a sort of hyper-civilized place. And while he's in this hyper-civilized place in the next four books, he tells all the stories that we're familiar with from the monster part, the cyclops and the lotus eaters and the, the giants who eat men. And after he's told those four books, we're halfway through. Book 12, after only one minute. <laughs> the second 12 books take Odysseus home. He arrives on the beach in Ithaca and brilliantly doesn't recognize where he is. It's covered in a mist. He doesn't know what's going on. He's being tricked by the goddess Athena. And the next 12 books slowly take us back towards his inhabitation and his position as master of the household. And he does it through a slow process of recognition, first through a, uh, a, a swineherd who is one of his own servants, and then through his dog, and then through his son, and then through... Finally, he gets to meet Penelope, his wife, and a very long, drawn-out recognition takes place. Before that, he has to kill, or in the middle of his recognition of Penelope, he has to kill the suitors, then fight with the suitors' family, and everything stops with a thunderclap from Zeus in the middle of action. But we know that Odysseus is going to go on traveling. The first thing he says to his wife when he gets back into bed after 20 years is, this is not the end, I'm about to go away again. again. <laughs> And <laughs> so that's one minute and 57 seconds. And my last 12 seconds, I will just point to two of the things that we've mentioned slightly, but are the two great themes in some ways of the Odyssey. Since I'm the professor of Greek, you'll have to forgive me if I teach you one word of Greek today. The first word of the Odyssey is andra, which we can translate as man or a man or the man or person, male, adult. And that introduces the great theme of the Odyssey of what it is to be, not just a person, but a male adult. And it starts with his relationship to his child. It's going to go through his relationship with his mother. We're going to get this extraordinarily complex version of what it is to be a person. And if you think of the journey of Odysseus as a way of discovering about a person, it's really important that journey never ends, that he is going to go away again. There's an extraordinarily open-ended view of what identity might be, which is why it's such a great text. But as everyone's mentioned too, the other extraordinary thing about the Odyssey is the way in which there's so many stories about stories. Just as Odysseus is the original tricky bastard, you ask him the time, he tells you a lie, right? There are so many different versions of how to tell stories about Odysseus. Telemachus travels to hear stories about his father. When Odysseus asks, is in, 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 with the Phaeacians, he hears songs about himself. He's already the subject of epic, in his own epic. When he gets back to Ithaca, he tells lies that Homer describes brilliantly as lies like the truth. Right? So we're always in this world of Odyssean language. And it's that combination of how does that great story of identity relate to the great story of how we use language that has made the Odyssey the most extraordinary teaching text for generations and the most extraordinary text about culture for generations. Simon, thank you. I mean, two minutes for the summary and one minute for the themes. That was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> um, I would like, actually, to pick up your first theme now. 
Um, and you, you talked about Odysseus, the Andra, the, the man, the hero, people often say of this poem. You called him the original tricky bastard. Um, uh, can we kind of get a sense of how difficult it is to get, to get a grip on Odysseus? Karen, what do you reckon? Well, I suppose you could... I, I, I suppose what's interesting about him is it's, there's always a flip side, and that's, like, real life, so our strengths are our weaknesses. So if he's referred to as the lord of the liars in the, in the text, um, sort of thinking about what that might mean now as a, a leader. Do we, do we want our great leaders to be lords of lying? Or does it sort of show us something else around flexibility about um, being a survivor. Um, there's always a sort of different way to view him, even if we're getting his side of the story. I think, you know, he does actually, he, he demonstrates his vulnerability, um, but yet is sort of constantly fighting against it and himself in that space. He doesn't get great press in later Greek literature, does he? I mean, we think of him as this, you know, this very complicated, wily, travelling person. But by the time you get to the fifth century tragedy, he is a shit, basically. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, in all in all of Greek tragedy, every one I can think of, he is always a villain because what elevates him in the Odyssey, look. He's a complicated, it's complicated, you know. He's a, as Emily Wilson has said, right? That's the way she chooses to translate the most famous adjective in all of Greek literature, which is the first adjective that's used of Odysseus in the Odyssey, polytropon, which means a man of many twists and turns, someone who turns things around, who has a twisty character, a twisty mind, who also follows a twisty route on his way home. But, you know, I always think it's important to emphasize that he is complicated, and that's part of his appeal. He is no, by no means admirable all the time, but sometimes he is. You know, if you're... My father, when he was sitting in on my first-year university seminar on the Odyssey, which was one of the most insane experiences I've ever had, was constantly objecting and saying, you know, I don't see why this guy's supposed to be a hero. He's terrible, you know, and he is terrible in many ways, you know. Uh, but I think part of the genius of him as a character is that like many charismatic people, he is both admirable and reprehensible. And look, one of the most interesting, I, you know, it's funny you think of him as an as expat because I always say, and perhaps even more sinisterly, He's the first anthropologist. And mm. everywhere that he goes, he mm. destroys. The catalog of the journeys of Odysseus, right? Everywhere he goes, he leaves heartbreak, destruction, and ruin in his way. So what's admirable about him then? <laughs> well, he is a charismatic character. I mean, he is, he is inventive and funny and, and mm. appealing. You know, I... One shouldn't forget that he's occasionally faced by monsters who are trying to pull his head off, where a lie might be quite a good way of getting out of the particular position. I mean, he doesn't just lie for the habit of it in general, although it is very no, no, no. dear to his heart. I mean, he does need to do this. But I think one of the most interesting things about the text in terms of the complexity, he is the master trickster. 
But at the same time, the one person who tricks him is his wife. And what's fascinating about that is the way she tricks him, not with the famous trick of the bed that she says, pull out the bed in which we slept and we'll sleep there. And he says, who's moved my bed? How could it move? It can't be moved. It's built up. So that's the moment she recognizes him when she's being least like himself, when he's actually being tricked. And what I find fascinating is a sense of how you might understand the complexity of not just one figure, but a figure in a relationship is when are you most recognizable? When you're like yourself or when you're being not like yourself? And I think that's a, that's a, you know, I think that's a really profound and interesting question Thank about you. marriage. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all us middle-aged ladies will go away and read the Odyssey with new eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and us middle-aged men. Mm. And, and us lying trickers bastards. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you brought up women now, and, and I'm going to come to Madeline because um, we've, you know, we've had Odysseus staying for seven years with the most glorious nymph on the planet, um, uh, and then eventually comes home to his wife. Um, but in the sense, I mean, I got the feeling from, from your book that you, in a way, wanted to kind of somehow turn the tables on Odysseus and say, let's look at this story from the point of view of one of the, one of the women who are the kind of, the sort of, the well, victims is putting it in some ways too strongly, but, but who, the, who, who are kind of what, or Odysseus is foil. What happens if you look at it from the other way? And, and is, that what, is that what you're wanting to do? Yes, very much. And, and I'm going to pick up on what you were saying about Penelope because I think that she, I, I absolutely agree that I, I think Homer demonstrates that she is more intelligent than her extremely intelligent husband, that this whole thing is about how intelligent Odysseus is, but actually, you know, she's the one who plays the final trick. And, um, and certainly she's more self-disciplined than he is. Uh, I, I'm not going to pile on Odysseus. That wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm not going to pile on Odysseus, but, uh, but you know, as you say, I think I think part of what makes him interesting is that is that ambivalence um, about him and, and the ambiguity in his character, yeah. the complexity. He blows up, he loses his temper, he makes terrible decisions. You know, all those things happen over the course of the the poem. But uh, what what drew me in particular to kind of looking at it from Circe's perspective is that you know she what an amazing character, the first witch in Western literature um, who turns men to pigs. She seems to stand completely outside um, any sort of normal hierarchy that we're used to looking at. She is independent. She lives alone on her island with sort of her nymphs. Um, and she's not you know put into one of the traditional roles. She's not a mother, um, she's not a wife, and yet here comes Odysseus, and I sort of felt like her whole story, she goes from being this huge, amazing, really interesting character to just, you know, now you gotta fit down into Odysseus's story. She has to be kind of regularized, and you know, literally she kneels before him and sort of made smaller um, to serve his story. And, you know, it is his story. It's called The Odyssey. But, uh, you know, I wanted to imagine what it would be like to sort of think about it being her story. Um, how would her version of this story look? And, and as he, you know, turns her into this, as he sort of uses her narratively and actually. Um, part of what, what he does is, is that, you know, she suddenly becomes this character who is, you know, she's an obstacle, of course. You know, he has to overcome her. Oh, this scary witch, I totally, 
you know, I defeated her, and then she really wanted to sleep with me. She's beautiful. And, you know, it's this whole story that is clearly he's spinning that, that really works for him. Um, but these female characters also have, have their own perspective, and how would they look at this character? Would they pick up on that um, ambiguity in, in his character? I, I would say so. There's one, one marvelous moment at the end of the Circe scene is it's the only place that Odysseus forgets to go home. Yeah. It's the only yeah. story where he has to be reminded yeah. by his men, you've got to go now. Right. Clearly, <laughs> so, clearly he did not have an iPhone 7. <laughs> but I mean, I think one of the interesting mm. things going on here, and it connects to this issue of the complexity of his identity mm. is, and it, it relates to something you were saying before, that we for, the Odyssey is interested in two concurrent phenomena that we know to be true from our own lives, which is we believe that there is an inner me. We have this sense of me. But as we also know, we change over time and through circumstances. And one of the ways, you know, talking about how the first word of the Odyssey is man, so it is to a large extent, like most Greek literature, a literature of a patriarchal society, what does it mean to be a man? That's what Greek literature is interested in, except Sappho. And one of the ways that his identity as a man is described or defined is through his relationships to women. And I think one of the reasons, and I must say that you know, one way to look at his experience is that he is feminized as the Greeks saw it because he's rendered powerless, he's rendered homeless, he is uh, victimized, you know, so he comes home, one could argue, a richer character than when he left to go and fight in the Trojan War, precisely because we define ourselves both from this idea of a sort of interior core that's unchangeable, but also through our relationships, relationally, and I think the Odyssey is really brilliant about how that works. One of the most extraordinary things in that, in all of Western literature, is when he meets the princess Nausicaa on the beach, and she's a beautiful young girl, and he wants to seduce her in a certain way, not to have sex, but just to get help. And he says, he talks to her about the wonders of the marriage she's about to have if she gets married. And he says, there are three things a woman should want. And the first one, of course, is a man. Blah. The second one is a house. Blah. But the third one is more fascinating. He uses the Greek word homophrosyne. You should have like-mindedness with your husband. And that is the only time in all of Greek patriarchal literature where a male author says one of the things you want with a woman is to have the same sort of mental setup. Normally, you, know, you can imagine what the, the standard terms are. You know, the man is intelligent, the woman is emotional, the man is rigorous, the woman is not. But this is the one time that you actually get an opportunity to say, you should be like, you should be together. And that's maybe, there you go, there's a bit of a return for Odysseus but, against all these attacks on him. <laughs> but in a sense, just to, to mm. finish off with some mm. real victims before we, mm. we move on. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the bit of the poem that makes a lot of us feel the most uncomfortable mm. is the fate at the end of the slaves, the serving women, uh, female slaves in mm. the palace of Odysseus uh, who've been uh, not really fully willingly uh, serving the suitors who want to marry Penelope and they get slaughtered. I mean, mm. but 
Yeah, there, well, that's a, that's a survival um, activity in the whole construct of slavery, isn't it? Um, that women have had to and continue to have to um, enact in order to survive. So in that sense, it's a, a deeply harsh um, outcome. And I mean, going back to what I was saying about the idea of whether he's moral or ethical, that's perhaps where the moral compass mm -hmm. to me that's a sort of slip in the moral compass whereas previously when he's lied to survive um, mm. because a great hideous creature wants to you know dismember him then yes mm. of course we can we can forgive that but I don't think I mean you know in so many ways we're so you know when when women falter then it's, um, oh my God, you know, I mean, imagine if Penelope had actually faltered, what would, you know, what would her fate have then been? And I just wanted to say a sort of around this idea of, um, you know, for me, um, hierarchically, what I found really interesting was that for a woman to match Odysseus with mm. like-mindedness, mm. she actually has to be superhuman. She has to be beyond mm. the human. He gets to be immortal. He's a man. But to match him on that level, then, you know, are you a goddess? Or, you know, it's Penelope notwithstanding. But, you know, it's mm. that, that, that idea that somehow you've got to either have access to... Um, mm. You know, it's, it's Athena who's his champion. And in fact, when I, um, in the piece that I wrote, I wanted to focus on his um, mother, um, Anticlea, which I found meant a sort of woman of no fame. That's sort of literally what her name means. So she has no fame. And when he goes to the underworld and he discovers his mother's dead, he didn't even know that. In the, in the sort of 20 years that he's been away and she dies pining for him. Um, but he's like, no, can you hold on? Because I need to talk to Teresias first. I've got to speak to the prophet. Hold on, mum. Yeah, yeah, in a minute, I'll come to you. Um, and I found that really, um, you know, so th those are the sort of kind mm. of, I, sus I suppose, sort of fallibilities that we observe in him mm. all the time. And, and to pick up, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say to pick up on that idea of hierarchy yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. I, I also think it's it is important to remember that you know these are mostly aristocrats that we're talking about, yeah. and the gap. You know, the Odyssey actually features a couple um, slaves in prominent roles. You know, Eurycleia, um, Odysseus's nurse, and Telemachus's nurse. Who uh, she's actually the one who recognizes him based on a scar he has on his leg when she's washing his his feet. Um, but his reaction to her recognizing him is so brutal um, yeah. that he he just comes back with this um, this rage, and you know it's clearly coming from she doesn't he doesn't want her to blow the plan that he has created. Uh, but I think. You know, it, it's important to sort of keep in mind that that those women, for example, the twelve maids that you mentioned, you know, they had no consent to give, um, right. and yet, mm. you know, both in the Odyssey and in later <coughs> translations, they have often been, you know, called whores and things like that. But there, mm. one last point on this, and then we go on. And no, well, on. I just thought, you know, but the murder of the slave women is also consistent with his treatment of many of the male suitors who are presented as nice characters. You know, they just wanted to marry Penelope. They didn't, you know, they thought he was dead. But, you know, several times at the end, you know, mm. people will come up to him and say, well, don't kill me. I'm just some, you know, nice guy from Oxford or whatever. And, 
I had no idea. The, the, the slaughter has to be total, and I think it's unabashed about... Except the, for the poet and except for except the seer. For the, so he looks yeah, after the ones who are really good and who might write songs about him. I personally, I personally love when he sees his mother in the underworld. I always say she is the first Jewish mother in world literature because he didn't know she died. And he's like, Ma, what are you doing here? And she said, well, you didn't call, you didn't write. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Right. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. <laughs> What I'd like to do now is just move us on a little bit. I mean, we've been talking about the complexity of the character of, uh, of Odysseus and the complexity of, of manhood, in a sense. But one thing that always strikes me very forcibly, uh, and Simon, in a sense, launched this in what he said, uh, is the way that it's not just the characters, that nothing is ever quite uh, what it seems in the Odyssey, and you might think that what you've got here, particularly in the conflicts with um, the, quotes, barbarians on the margins of the world, that there's a very straightforward clash between civilization, good, represented by Odysseus, and barbarity, bad, uh, that Odysseus, in a sense, justly 
uh, manages to either escape from or exterminate. And yet, when you look at any of these conflicts that Odysseus has, one of the things, you know, here we are right at the beginning of Western literature, and it is constantly taking the ground from under your feet. And there's one very famous um, episode that comes in you know, every Tales from the Odyssey, and I'm fairly confident that you'll be hearing it later in the, in the excerpts that are going to be performed, is when Odysseus uh, actually drives the eye out of the cannibalistic giant Polyphemus, the one-eyed Cyclops, and manages cleverly to escape from the cave of the Cyclops by having his men um, cling to the bottom of Polyphemus's sheep, and Polyphemus, now blind, of course, can't see them, nor can he feel them as he pats his animals. Uh, it looks like, you know, told like that, looks like a really straightforward bit of, you know, Odysseus, Greek, civilised, versus giant, one-eyed barbarian who eats people. But even there, it's never as simple, even that story. I mean, you wrote about it in um, your memoir, um, Daniel. Yeah, it's a very interesting. I mean, the Odyssey, it's, you know, again, we come to this issue of complexity that nothing is straightforward. And in the Cyclops episode, uh, you know, we all think of Cyclops as this monster, although, and one of the things that Emily Wilson does in her translation, he points out that actually the word man is used of the Cyclops. He's this terrible man. So it's, it's never clear cut. It's never civilization versus barbarism, which, you know, when I was at university, that's how we sort of learned it, but it's much more uh, complicated than that. And, you know, Odysseus, a great theme of the Odyssey, obviously, is hospitality. You know, the suitors are violating the hospitality of the palace, but he enters the Cyclops' cave. You know, he criticizes the Cyclops for eating his men, not without reason. And, but he has entered the Cyclops' cave uninvited. That's why I think of him as the anthropologist, right? He, he just goes, he barges into these places. So no one ever talks about that. You know, he's, he's the barbarian invader in the Cyclops' nice little house with his cheese and his milk and his sheep. He's not bothering anybody, you know? So it, it's all... I think the, one of the great things about the Odyssey is how hip it is to the complexities of the, of mm. the way we want to make it a simplistic mm. opposition all the time between men mm. and women, husbands and wives, Greek and barbarian, mm. but it's always more complicated. It's very important that when Odysseus comes in, he gets the Cyclops drunk. He gives him a false mm. present. Yes. He gives him a gift that makes him drunk. And then the Cyclops says, what's your name? And he gives him a false name. And he lies. And then he puts his eye out. You know, this is... There, the failure of reciprocity is on both sides. And it's the way that works is a very, very important part of that story. Then and he one, can't resist, mm, can he? No. By saying, ah, oh, you idiot. Ah, it wasn't really nobody. It was actually me. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I think that... Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I, I, one little extra point. I once saw a beautiful retelling of the Odyssey by a seven-year-old girl the Cyclops episode. And it came to the famous joke where Odysseus said, he's asked his name and he says, my name is no man. Mm. And she didn't write very well, so she turned the letter upside down. So he said, my name is woman. <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> now there's a retelling. <laughs> In some ways, the nastiest bit, though, of that whole episode, I mean, 
well, there's plenty of nasty bits. I mean, yeah. Homer's description of the gouging out of the eye um, mm. and the sizzling that the stake yeah, makes. They heat the stake, is, as is it were. particularly repellent. You know? um, but it's the fact that in the end, Odysseus can't resist taunting him. Yeah. That is what is, you know, that he goes on and on. His men say, basically, shut up. You know, this, enough's enough. And that's actually one of my favorite things about Odysseus is those, that failure, those failures of discipline in, in himself and sort of those moments where he just, you know, he wants to assert himself and, and his fame. You know, I think oftentimes we talk about um, Achilles as being the one who is obsessed with fame, but Odysseus is very much interested in his own legend um, and, and his own sort of status in the world. Um, he is the new best of the Greeks now that, you know, Achilles is, is dead. Um, and I, I think the other thing, though, that those moments sort of bring out for me is we were talking about his identity, and you know he is a war hero. He has lived through ten years of an appalling war. Um, he brings about the fall of Troy, and you know sacks of cities in the ancient world were so ugly and so brutal. Um, all the women you know, and children taken captive, the men killed, everything sacked and burned. And so you know, he's lived through that. He's lived through watching his men eaten by the Cyclops in front of his eyes. You know, so his, his reactions are also, I feel like he's been shaped by that. Yeah. And you know, talking about how kind of he has to slaughter everyone at the end, I feel like this is also this outsize, you know, is he able to, to react with something other than violence? That you know, he sort of keeps reaching for that. But pick, I mean, picking up from that, I, I, mm. it's interesting that he, what distinguishes him throughout the narrative, except that notable exception, is precisely his ability to retain control even in the most humiliating and degrading situations. And so I think sort of narratively that's meant, as it were, to justify the intensity of the explosions when he, when it happened. You know, he has to, he has to disguise himself as a beggar in order to get back into his own palace and people treat him like crap and they insult mm. him. So, you know, you feel that these explosions when they happen mm. are, as it were, you know, sort of emotionally justified. They're, they're, they're satisfying in some way. They're ugly mm. and terrible, but they're, mm. they don't come from nowhere. And One of the loveliest things that Madeleine just pointed out to is this idea also that Odysseus can never actually be at home. He can come home, but he has to leave. He has to keep traveling yes. in some ways. And I think there's that, that sense that you can't imagine Odysseus having a quiet life. Well, Tennyson got <laughs> that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the whole Tennyson point burn, of yeah. Ithaca. Mm -hmm. He yeah. would not, however, get very good marks on a leadership course, given that <laughs> he is the only one of his whole party who actually gets home safely. Mm -hmm. All the other companions are dead by the end of the poem. And mm -hmm. that's... That's for me also is a, is a little bit of a problem. This is my father problem. said, well, I was in the army. He would never have made it in the army. You know? <laughs> yeah. there, there's actually an American uh, a psychiatrist who works with Vietnam veterans um, who's written a book called Odysseus in America that looks at exactly that. And mm. he talks about you know, how yeah. he would be court-martialed today if we were, if yeah. we were looking at him. Mm. Now, in, in five minutes or so, uh, we're hoping to, to throw this open for, for discussion, but there's one point I wanted to raise before we did that, because um, I know I get very strong feeling there are some people in the audience who know the Odyssey very well, but I also suspect there are some people who are about to give 
the Odyssey their first read. And we've been talking about its complexity, its heroism, clashes of civilization and barbarity or not. And, and I think all those are terribly important ways of understanding the Odyssey. But when you pick the Odyssey up now and you start to read it, there are kind of things which, uh, even in the best translations, still somehow are liable to get in the way. You know, the repeated epithets that go with nouns, rosy-fingered dawn or whatever. Um, but also the whole panoply of uh, the divine apparatus, that the gods are somehow in control. And as we've mentioned, you know, there's the underworld. You know, Odysseus pays a visit to the place of the dead. And I think some people, when they, when they read it first, those things do get in the way a bit. And Karen, you actually picked the going to the underworld mm. section for your reworking of your episode of the Odyssey. So why? You know. Well, it was, it was weird actually because I, I'd written two books of poetry, um, very kind of elegiac poetry, and I thought, oh, I really want to get away from death. I don't want to deal with death anymore. I really, and then I was like, oh, I have to do, I have to actually respond to this part of it. Um, but I think, to me, it's, it's deeply fascinating, this idea that there's this very sort of thin veil between these two different realms, between the living and the dead, or the spirit that lives on in another dimension. And I love this idea of, you know, that um, you have to go through a lot of ritual, ceremony, sacrifice. Um, you, you, you have to enact all of these things, but ultimately, it's a, it's a, you know, if, if you're thinking about it in terms of challenge, you know, what's the biggest obstacle if you want to communicate with someone? Well, actually, maybe that they're dead. <laughs> that's going to be problematic. But, you know, that's a sort of, it's a sort of like a final frontier, in a way, that he, he goes through. Um, and just for curiosity as well, I mean, if you could be to go to where we go, where we know we're definitely going, but we have no idea what it will be like, um, there's that factor to sort of be a tourist in that, that world. Do, do we have any tips in general for, for, for dealing with, say, the, the gods? How do we understand the gods in this poem? Because, you know, they pop up and they look kind of mm. all-powerful and you imagine them in kind of wearing mm. sheets and... Always giving you beauty treatment. Well, I think it's interesting that we said the first word of the, the text is man. And the way you might want to understand the, the idea of what it is to be a human is in relation to what happens in terms of death or the possibility of some sort of sublimity, some sort of beyond. And after all, Odysseus with Calypso is offered immortality. The goddess says, just stay here with me. You can become like a god. You'll never die. And he actually says no to that. And he says no to permanent food. In fact, the two things you can't have enough of, life and food, right, in, in the ancient world. And he, he's offered them both and he rejects them. And that's part of what makes this text interesting is that he says, I want to go back to Ithaca because it's a harsh land but a fit nurse of men. So this idea, you know, you don't want the... So the immortality is a crucial part of this text because but he wants immortal fame, but it's the, only by fame he can be immortal or by his children he can be immortal. But immortality mm -hmm. is boring. You know, that's the problem of the Greek 
gods. And, and we one will of never the know great, Daniel whatever Daniel. else you say about Odysseus, <laughs> yeah. he gives up the chance to be, have eternal life mm. because he would rather have Ithaca and Penelope. Yeah. I have to say that's, that's pretty good, you know. And, and it's meaningful because human life is meaningful because it has pain. Pain is one of the great moments of the Odyssey is when we get this incredible series of flashbacks to the moment when as a baby Odysseus received his name which is connected to the Greek word for pain and it seems to say something essential about the human experience and here I come back to complexity that part of what gives life meaning is the fact that it ends. The gods are always bored, that's why they're always screwing around, you know, they have, they just it's really boring, and I think that's incredibly moving, you know. And they also, they also tease and bully Odysseus. There's a very strange sense if you come from a Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea that God is somehow going to go, ha, 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 you didn't recognize me. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that is a problem for reading the Odyssey. I think on, on that note, um, we really would love to throw this open to comments or questions in the audience and the lights are coming up, and I believe we've got some roving mics, and we're going to take, I haven't got my glasses on, which makes this a bit more of a challenge than usual, but we're going to take, say, a group of three questions uh, at first, uh, and then put those to the panel, and then have another three, um, just so we can um, have more. So. Um, with the roving mic, as I said, I don't have my glasses, so the Sorry, roving mic, please uh, pick somebody with their hand up. And Sorry, the, front the briefer, the better. Mm. Not that we've always been brief, but... Um, no epic questions. It's no, this is not an epic question, yes. Hi, um, so um, everyone on the panel has spoken quite a lot about victims and collateral damage and how there's quite a lot of collateral damage caused as Odysseus travels, some of it more necessary than others maybe. Um, I haven't read the original Greek because Greek is really hard, but I was wondering if in the original... <laughs> I was wondering if in the original language there's a sense of um, sort of mourning this damage and this loss of life, or if it's gleeful about the excitement and destruction and war is fun or how it how how much it mourns that thanks can we have just two two more and then we'll have another round after we've responded to these so so i hello. can't, I can't hello. see i can't see the hands hello can i speak yes yes all right sorry um you said there was no homer so who wrote it <laughs> Do you know, I told Simon as we were talking before, I, I, he said, what, what kind of questions we're likely to get? I predicted that one. If Homer didn't exist, who wrote the Odyssey? <laughs> what, just, can we have just one more? As I say, I can't see hands. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I was wondering why you think it is that there's never been a really good film made mm. of the Odyssey. Right. Yeah, and that's certainly the case, isn't it? Um, mm. Okay, uh, can we start with... Um, let, let's start with who's Homer, um, Simon, Professor of Greek at University of Cambridge. Um, if Homer didn't exist, who wrote the Odyssey? And can we yeah. have another of your kind of one-minute brilliant summations? Because okay. yeah. <laughs> we could be the here difficulty for a very is, long time. Whoever she was, we don't know. Right? Uh -huh. <laughs> 
There are, <laughs> there are, there, there are two basic theories. I mean, quite simply, one is that there's an oral tradition which produces poetry by a series of bards going round and the stories gradually accrete and get better and incremental till they get to the stage they're in. And at a certain point, probably in the fifth century, they were, or the end of the beginning of the sixth century, they were tied down and they became pretty well a fixed text. Uh, and therefore, to talk about a single author is a mistake. The other theory is that there was some sort of monumental bard, one bard or two bards, who was so brilliant within this oral tradition that it was his version that went ahead. And people have been arguing about this since the Renaissance. There's no answer. And uh, from as far as I'm concerned, we've got a pretty solid text. Why don't we read and talk about it? Now, reading and talking about it, let's think just very quickly about the original language. I mean, does... <laughs> If we're thinking about victims, collateral damage, and the kind of violence of it, does, does the Greek do something different? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer this a little bit in, in sort of relationship to um, the Aeneid, for instance, where the idea of collateral damage is, is built into sort of Virgil's thesis statement, where he says, you know, of such a weight it was to found the Roman race. Founding the Roman race was this heavy thing. It was heavy for Aeneas, and it was heavy for all the people that he sort of steps on um, along the way that have to get kind of ground up in this progress to empire. Um, and I think also uh, in comparison sort of to the other, to the Iliad, you know, I, I think that Homer or whoever it is, the storyteller, um, the storytelling sensibility, it, it is so clear that, you know, I, I don't really think you can call the Iliad a pro-war poem because we see in such intimate detail yeah. what it does to men's bodies. And when you are reading it in the Greek, you learn all the parts for the internal organs um, because there is so much, you know, exploding of brains and sort of spirit through the heart. And, and, I, and I think that there is some of that in the Odyssey as well, that, you know, we see what violence does and what it does to physical bodies, what does humans who are not gods, who are not protected by their immortality up on Mount Olympus. Um, and so I think in that sense, there is sort of a space for them in the poem, but we also have to sort of make sure we see that. There's also something else, I think it just has to be quickly said, that the Odyssey is filled with tears. Mm. It is a poem in which, <laughs> as you know from reading my book, was the other thing my father hated about the Odyssey. It was like, I was in the army, nobody cried. You know, <laughs> everybody is crying, especially Odysseus. And let me quickly say that part of the climactic couple of books of the Odyssey is this incredibly wonderful scene in the underworld, in the underworld where the, the ghosts of the suitors have all gone. And there's a wonderful exchange between the ghost of Agamemnon and the ghost of Achilles, and each one is telling the other what a great funeral he got, and it, which in a way sort of buries the Iliad mm. at the end of the Odyssey. So I think it's a poem that is extremely worried about mourning. You know, uh, I think it is attuned to that. Then the, the final question of that three was, you know, great epic poem, why not great epic movie? Why is it, why have movies of the Odyssey always been, sorry if anybody involved mm, is here, so dreadful? <laughs> well, I think, I think that idea though of, um, I just want to go back to that idea of this um, reading from the original and the idea around translation. Um, and Emily Wilson, you know, talks in um, the introduction to her translation about this idea that, you know, 
are you being faithful to this kind of weird sort of notion of some idealized purity of the original, that it's such a pure thing? And, and what is that thing that you're really trying yeah. to say nothing else can ever match? ever. And I think that that in itself is a bit of a skewed idea. And then thinking about it, if you think of it as a collaborative text, there's still lots of um, collaborative writing that happens today. And that is going to bring me around to the film bit. So if you, maybe there's never been a good film of the Odyssey, but is Game of Thrones a collaborative kind of version? Is that a very loose version of the Odyssey with multiple authors and that actually the box set now is our kind of great epic poem? That could maybe speak yeah. to that. I'll give you one, one, one answer to the question and I've seen pretty well every film of the Odyssey that's been made and I agree with you they're all terrible. But if you wanted a little icon of terribleness I would go for the siren scene famous moment in the Odyssey when he has to go past the sirens who sing him a song. Every single film of the Odyssey makes that song about sex. They say, come here, we're beautiful, it's sexy, come here. Right? Because that's how Hollywood and most filmmakers think. In Homer, they say, come here, we know everything. We offer you knowledge. Right? And I think the difficulty is that the Odyssey, the people who make films about the Odyssey don't understand it's complicated. If they've come across it as a child, they think of it as a childish text, and they turn it into a childish story. I'm afraid that just doesn't work. I, was, I had the great pleasure of being a reviewer for the Evening Standard of the film Troy. And, uh, I reviewed Troy, that too. Troy, we all reviewed that. We all, I, Troy opened the same day across the world, so everybody went in to review it at the same time. And as I went in, they asked me to sign a waiver that I would not reveal the plot. <laughs> Well, a thing to be said Shock. very Troy quickly. <laughs> a thing to be said very quickly about why these adaptations are so terrible is the plot of the Odyssey is extremely convoluted. You know, it moves around in time and space, and it, it starts in the year twenty, but then it goes back in time. And every one, every version I've seen, that terrible Armando Sante one. Yeah with, however, Isabella Rossellini as Athena, um, <laughs> Pamal, is that they, tell, they start at the birth of Telemachus. You know, they tell it in order, which is very boring. You know, its, it's interest derives yeah. from its convoluted quality. Right. I think we've got time for just one more trio of questions with brief questions and brief answers. And again, uh, if you've got the mic in your hand, speak. I was just wondering uh, what you thought of uh, Odysseus's men's attitude towards him, because if I remember right, I haven't read it in a long time, but they disobey him quite directly on a couple of occasions by opening the bag of winds, for example, and Hyperion's cattle, if I'm right. Mm -hmm. But obviously he's led them to victory in the Trojan War, so he's obviously not trusted entirely, but still, you know, their king and their hero, so I wonder what your opinion was on that. Thanks. Just get two more. Um, Hello. Um, considering the near barbarity that Odysseus can display, would you personally consider him worthy of the title hero? Right. <laughs> and one mm. more. Um, so Madeline's talked uh, mentioned a bit about the Iliad. So would you say that they're a kind of 
two extremes when you compare Achilles as a hero and Odysseus as a hero. Can you find what makes a Greek hero in either of the texts or in some sort of middle ground? <laughs> Thanks very much. This will keep them busy for the next three minutes. Um, can we just start with uh, Odysseus's men's attitudes to him? Anybody? Um, what you, what Mistakes you were made. <laughs> <laughs> On both sides. They also told him to leave the Cyclops cave. <laughs> well, it's part of, it goes to the complexity of the character because we know from the Iliad, since we're going to be weaving in the Iliad now, that he is one of the real heroes of the Iliad and is a, a commander and an effective warrior. But he, you know, one must say that what one knows of him as a leader in the Odyssey is problematic to say the least. Not least that he manages to lose all, how many men were? Hundreds and hundreds of men. But they constantly rebel against him. They don't trust him. They don't believe what he says. So that's interesting. I don't know what the answer is, but it's telling us something about the difficulties he has being a leader. But the question we, of the hero, we, yes, okay, do, do the uh, hero, one sentence on the hero? The, the last two questions, yeah. sense, are about the same kind of thing, mm, about yeah. the barbarity, does that mean he's mm. hard to call him a hero, and, and what about the, mm. the different versions of hero that you see mm. in the yeah. Iliad and the Odyssey? If we can have a couple right. of sentences, otherwise I shall get terribly told off if we go on too late. Right, okay, one sentence answer. Okay, a hero is not someone about whom we sing, he's got to be strong and he's got to be tall and he's got to be whatever, you know, he's a hero. That no. is not what a Greek hero is, right? A Greek but hero Hinduism. is someone who crucially goes too far. And going too far is both transcendence and transgression. And you can't have one without the other in Greek. Would anybody like to add anything to that pithy summation? That's what you want Professor to Goldhill. Well, two minutes for the Odyssey, one minute for <laughs> Karen, just, you, you're looking tempted. No. One minute, <laughs> one minute, and then I close. Um, I suppose, it, to me, I was just thinking about how that connects to the idea of home. You know, he, he wants to go home, but then he doesn't want to be at home and mm. home is a place, home is his, him, himself, um, mm. you know, and I think, I was thinking about that thing, what's a hero and is it just this idea of action, the mm. action hero, does he have to do things to get things done? I mean, Penelope doesn't get to be the hero, why? Because she stays in one place doing a repetitive mm. action. She's clever, but that's what she does. He travels and he transcends time and space in that way. So in a sense, I agree, but just with home as this sort of proviso. There's actually a wonderful Dorothy Parker poem that's just about that sort of contrast between Odysseus and Penelope, and it's Penelope speaking. It's, the poem is called Penelope, and she says, you know, he's, he's going to go out and he's going to ride the silver wave, and he's going to be out there in the sea. I'm going to sit at home and rock, you know, answer my neighbor's knock on the door. I'm going to do the laundry, and they will call him brave. And it sort of ends with this, you know, complete puncturing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point on which to end. I'd just like to say, thank everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, thank all the panellists, who I won't name again. Um, and just to say that I think all of us uh, will be signing books in the book-selling area here, wherever that is, but I'm sure that we can all find it. 
Uh, we hope to see you there. And if you've got any quick questions you want to put to us individually, that would be a good time to do it. So thank you very much indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.